This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. He said, you know, a lot of our time management issues are emotional management issues. And then it just, and it dawned on me because of what I do um, outside of the show. A lot of our relationship issues are emotional management issues. So think about this. When you think of your fight, the biggest argument you have with a friend, a family member, a neighbor, um, do you have, do you lose control? Do you feel rejected, dejected? Do you get angry? Do you feel hurt beyond measure? Do you get sick of it? You're tired. You're exhausted. You're worn out. A lot of this, if you notice, they're all emotions, and they're emotional reactions. They're emotional management um, issues. And as as I've been working with couples, I had a couple come in the other day, and basically the story goes like this. She, um, They were signing up. They went on a vacation to Hawaii. And while they were there, part of the deal was they had to go listen to a time uh, – like a timeshare meeting, right? Where a timeshare is where you go own one whatever, 40th of a condo in Hawaii and you put $20,000 down and then you get to go use it once every year or whatever. So a lot of these companies, you know, they've got great resorts all over the world and then you can go and, and go to all of those great – areas. So this couple is there just enjoying basking in the beautiful glow of Hawaii. And while they're signing up, it's a couple, the husband had been married before, so it's a second marriage for him. And, um, you know, they've had tension a long time. Uh, They've been married about two or three years, but it's been tense just because of, you know, trying to merge these new families and things. So as they're signing up for the timeshare, the husband is is entering their names uh, into like the register that they're there ready for their meeting. And he enters his name and then he puts his ex-wife's name instead of his new wife's name. And she, you know, was paying attention and noticed that. Okay, so what we call that in my business, that's the stimulus right there. Right. That is now that is the this is the moment where the cage fight begins. And the minute the name was down, she saw it and she had an immediate emotional reaction to it, which was kind of like, what? Prepare to die. And he he realized what he had done and he kind of froze. He hadn't looked at her his wife yet. But he immediately had his own reaction like, ah, jeez, I'm dead. I'm dead. Hope she didn't see that. And then he crosses the name off and puts his wife's, his second wife's name on. Okay. But that moment created this situation that then eventually, because we didn't manage our emotions in that moment, it turned into about two or three days of not talking one day of the man not even being allowed in the hotel room, so he slept on the beach like a vagrant, and all, um, and they they fought and fought and fought, and then actually made an appointment to come see me while they were still on their vacation, and then they got in. So 
when I say relationship issues are emotional management issues, that's exactly what I mean. She had an emotional reaction to what was going on. He had a reaction to what was going on. And because nobody could control the emotion, manage their own emotion, or lower their partner's emotion, it became an emotional, you know, roller coaster and, quite honestly, an emotional explosion. So I wanted to take you through some tools and some ideas to help us all recognize that in our relationships, it's if you don't manage your own emotion, you're setting yourself up. Because the pain, no matter what, is going to be yours. Well, yeah, but if I make it painful enough for him. But if you're making it painful for your partner, you're the one that's still going to pay, right? Because you have to maintain the pain in order to make it hurtful to another. So some rules, very basic rules. Rule number one, you are not your emotions. Because you feel angry doesn't mean you have to be angry. You can have a feeling as a human being and not ride it, you know, to death. You're not a dog. You don't have to just you you can think through this. You can process it. Why would a loving, decent, great, amazing guy write down his ex-wife's name? Well, because he's thinking about her. Maybe. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's just not thinking at all. Maybe he's going by habit. Maybe it has something to do with the mere fact that for I don't know how many years uh, eight, nine years, he was married to one woman, and he's instead got two hours with – or two years with this other woman. Well, yeah, but he should remember me more, right? Well, maybe. But you're not your emotion. You don't have to just react. You also are an agent that can choose and be what you need to be in this moment. You're, remember, emotions are there to teach you. They're there to help you. They're there to guide you. The reason both people were freaking out was so that we would pay attention to the moment. It, we weren't, we didn't, the, the wife didn't need to freak out and the husband didn't need to fear because this was catastrophic. It didn't need to be catastrophic. It was just, oh, we need to pay attention to this. Emotions are there to make sure we pay attention. They're there to make sure we take advantage of the right opportunity to handle something. And so we could have just used the emotion as a tool to help us. But what ended up happening to this couple is they ended up blowing up. They hurt themselves. They hurt each other. And in the end, it was probably because of their insecurities. We've got to learn that if you have an emotional response to something, it's, even if it's justified, I get it. You should be – if you were in a car accident that a drunk driver caused and it hurt you, you should be emotional and you should be angry. I'm not saying don't be angry. I am saying however long you allow the emotion to manage you is how long you will suffer. So our goal would then be to find another emotion. And one of the things um, we talk about a lot on the show is, you know, find your your best self. So that our lowest self will just take the emotion and run with it because we're afraid, we're hurt, we're worried, we're concerned. But our highest self um, will take us to another another level. This couple, when they finally got to my office, all I did eventually after talking to them is I showed them that they have many responses to this same situation – but I asked them very quite simply, um, if if all of a sudden one of you were sick, if one of you had cancer, would what would matter about this? And they're both like, well, nothing. Why wouldn't it matter if one of you if one of you really had cancer? And by the way, interestingly, one of them is sick, and it is scary. It's scary for them. 
the fear is the woman's afraid that she might she might be more easily replaceable if she's not already making an imprint on this guy that he can't get the name right. But it was out of fear she responded. And then his fear about how she responds created an issue. But all of a sudden, if we could get present and be our best self, which we tend to be when someone's sick, we tend to be our best self when we are more in our highest values and our highest principles. Things tend to work better for us. So think about it. Think about your relationships. And don't just assume that your problems are your partner. They might very well just be your emotions and your emotional inability to manage those emotions. Emotional intelligence, as we wrap it up, is very basically just a few skills. Emotionally intelligent people recognize their own emotion, and they know how to lower them and manage them and make them healthy. Emotionally intelligent people also know how to recognize the emotion of others, and they know how to help those people lower their emotion. And emotionally intelligent people also know how to enroll people into their emotions and get people to buy into their good emotions. So if you are having relationship problems, can I suggest, especially if you can't, you seem like you can't get any progress going, don't maybe stop trying to work on your partner and instead just start learning some emotional intelligence skills, managing your own feelings, trying to not be so fearful, trying to operate out of your highest self, your best self. That essence, that goodness that's inside of every one of us when we choose to be good. Anyway, Emotional Management 101. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. $201 billion, folks, for mental health uh, care. That's it's just crazy, crazy numbers. But there are some things, let me just suggest, that you can do to manage uh, or at least try to work and coach yourself through some of your own uh, anxiety issues We'll particularly today talk about anxiety, and I work with a lot of uh, just a lot of people. Um, so many times I'll have a mom and a dad bring their kids in to see me, and as we sit down, they'll start just talking about how their child hates school. They'll talk about the you know they have a hard time going out and socializing and doing what they're supposed to do. Um, and it worries the parents, right? And so you have a mom sitting there saying, look, aren't you going to go play? You really ought to go play. The other kids are playing. Why don't you ever want to play? You're such a disappointment. And even if it's not like intentionally said that you're not cutting it, something's weird with you, um, they already know that. These kids know that. And what I find is a lot of times an anxious parent comes in and they're worried and, by the way, anxious about their child who probably – has a little of their own anxiety, whether it's social anxiety or what have you. And so what I do, uh, one of the things I do in my organization is I help um, coach people through uh, their anxiety. And there's just, there's a lot of great research. And by the way, the, one of the number one ways to deal with your anxiety, 85% of it roughly, um, is simply your breathing, period. Usually when you're anxious, your your body starts to uh, – because of the, the, the hormones and what's happening, your breathing tends to be more shallow and fast, right? So a shallow, fast, rapid breathing, which makes it so all of a sudden you're not getting a deep, full breath, which stresses you out. Yeah. I think I was talking about something else, but uh, like, you know, Lord Vader, for example, Lord Vader sometimes might have anxiety. Who knows? But one way we can deal with it is um, is breathing. Just a deep cleansing breath. 
a deep enough breath that your chest, your belly, everything just pops out when you take that breath. And if you take a couple of those, you'll immediately feel some of the tension, the anxiousness. It'll dissipate. One reason is because your body is getting the air it needs. Another way that you can do this is um, talk it out. One of the fastest ways to get your anxiety out of you is simply to share it with another person. But sometimes it stresses you to share it so you don't share it, right? And instead you go, maybe you pull away, you disappear, you, you maybe medicate. A lot of people just go medicate their anxieties and emotions. They just try to numb them. They'll drink, they'll, you know, do marijuana. But they're doing what they can to get rid of this anxiety and to relax. By the way, others are taking pharmaceutical pills that are coming from their doctor, right? One might be legal, one's illegal. But the the point, I guess, behind it is we're still using some other method, a drug, to manage our emotion and our anxiety. It's needed. I get it for some. I get it. Um, I personally would suggest you go to the legal form because you're probably going to have less anxiety right, than chasing down the illegal form. But everyone should try to find a person or be the person that someone that you care about can share an oath to. Uh, think about it. Do you have somebody you can talk out your most difficult things in life? Because if you don't, then you're going to stuff them. And when you stuff them, it's going to probably make you more anxious and usually more or less likely that you're going to go act and do what you need to do. And then when anxious people don't go do what they need to do, they start to get depressed because they're not cutting it. They're not cutting it. Um, An activity that you might want to do is just find that one person you can share your deep feelings and concerns with, track them down, and even tell them, look, you're my, you're kind of my go-to person on some of this, and I don't want to burden you. I don't want to overdo it. But could we just plan a time to meet every couple of weeks and talk or however often you, that it works out for both of you? Another way to get some of the anxiety out is to write it out. One of my favorite activities with my clients is when they're feeling stressed, they've got a lot on their mind. If they've got stuff they've got to do, go write it down. Write your to-do list. Make a big, fat, nasty, gnarly to-do list. But some of the things aren't part of a to-do list. It's just feelings you're feeling. You're feeling overwhelmed. Your thoughts are swirling around in your mind. And what I'd suggest to my clients that they do is they write what they're feeling. Whatever they're thinking, they write it out. Like, holy cow, this job's driving me crazy. If I have one more person do this, I'm going to go crazy. Write your feelings out. And then what I ask them to do is write another line as they're writing. Instead of writing on a new line every time, write write on the same line over the same sentence you wrote earlier. And then on the third time, go do it a third time on the same line. So you're going to write a sentence three times on the same line. And what's cool about it is it gets all the ideas out, the thoughts out. It gets the energy out, the emotion out without ever – without making it readable. So you can pretty much say whatever you need to say. It also releases the energy because it it takes energy to write. So by the time you're done getting that energy out, it's out of you. You're tired. You're exhausted. It's powerful. Another tool, think it out. You can sometimes think your anxieties away by simply, you know, being realistic and gathering data. Instead of just automatically taking the negative thoughts of the fears of the future and this pressurized world, start using a, you know, a part of your brain to actually evaluate your thinking. Notice your thoughts. Go through what you're thinking in your head. Okay, so that's a negative thought. 
What's another way to look for this? Another way to think it out is to look for more evidence. Usually when you talk to somebody that's anxious, they don't have all the evidence of what's going on because they've only collected the fearful evidence. But what I would always ask my son who was suffering with this, I'd say, can you give me some examples of where you're doing really well at school? And amazingly, there was an abundance of answers. And it starts to let his cognitive thinking override some of his emotion. Another tool that I think is super powerful is to turn your anxiety out. A lot of anxiety, I believe, is just we're so self-focused because it, you know we're collapsing in on ourselves. And what we might want to try to do is find a way to serve our way out of this anxiety. Get out of yourself and go start offering yourself your tools, your resources, your help, your guidance – Offer to serve others. And as you offer to serve others, you get that great happy neurotransmitter, dopamine, starts to make you feel good. Anyway, folks, it's a tough game. I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying there are other answers. There's four right there. I got many, many more, and uh, they're yours, and they're free. Start there. Or get online and start researching it. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, for some, the Rio 2016 Summer Olympics, it's a celebration of patriotism, of American might, and world unity. For others, such events uh, like the Olympics bring memories of past athletic accomplishments, regret, sometimes the lingering question of what if. As children, we heard the phrase, practice makes perfect. And as adults, we've heard recently uh, in in a few books that have become very popular about the 10,000-hour rule, meaning if you practice anything for 10,000 hours, you will become an expert in that field. This raises the question, does practice make an Olympian? Can you make my child the next Michael Phelps? Here to answer those questions and ease our minds is Ph.D. Brooke McNamara, who's an assistant professor at Case Western Reserve University. Dr. McNamara, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. Talk to us about uh, your article um, in the conversation, Does Practice Make an Olympian? Is, is it as simple as simply just working 10,000 hours, or do these people just have other things going for them? It's not that simple. Like most things with human performance, it's actually rather complex. And practice and training are, of course, very important and necessary, but they only explain part of the expertise puzzle. Ah, darn it. (laughs) So it's not that simple. So what makes up, uh, as you look at the puzzle and and examine it, what what really is the, the, I guess, the balance? What's the formula? Well, that's the million-dollar question, and I'm not sure we'll ever come to being able to complete that formula 100% because, like I mentioned, it's so complex. It depends on the sport. It depends on potentially your position within the sport as far as what's necessary uh, to contribute to become an expert. So part of it is practice, absolutely. We found that Practice accounted for about 18% on average Mm. differences across people. So to be clear, that doesn't mean that if you practice, you only get 18% better. What it's saying is if there are two people who have different levels of performance, 
then the differences in the amount of practice that they've accumulated over their lifetime only explains about 18% of those differences in performance. Oh, wow. I mean, really, I mean, that's, that's not a lot, is it? it I, you imagine uh, um, uh, Michael Phelps, how on earth a guy has a seven-foot wingspan, <laughs> webbed hands and feet or whatever. The guy's he's just a phenom. So he could practice 10,000 hours, and then the next average guy next to him could practice 10,000 hours, and it would still only make up for maybe 18%, you're saying. Right, exactly. And as you're mentioning, height, body size, uh, physical characteristics obviously make a difference. I think it's really clear when we watch the Olympics and we look at, say, the gymnasts next to the basketball players, obviously physical traits uh, and genetic factors are very important, and they contribute to this puzzle. And timing, it seems like, too, because to, to be a swimmer, to be the number two swimmer next to Phelps, isn't doesn't mean you get much attention and and yet you could be a phenomenal swimmer that in your own you know generation could dominate right there's all sorts of opportunity factors right so it might matter for example the women's gymnasts um there were the top three in qualifiers were all americans however you could only contribute two performers per country so that third gymnast even though she was better than the gymnast from all the other countries, wasn't able to compete. So, right, we, we have rules. Sometimes they're arbitrary. Sometimes they just emerge naturally. That can make a difference in someone's lifetime performance. So as we are raising our children and I stand on the sidelines and watch all of these dads that are trying to create the next, you know, Joe Montana or Brett Favre, um, what what – what are the things we should focus on that make up, I guess, the other parts of the difference? Right. Well, I think that we can begin observing what our children seem to have penchants for, what seems to be a good match as far as their sport or other activity that's not a sport. And I think that parents can absolutely put in time and other resources that are necessary for practice and training. Some of these sports are really expensive to participate Mm. in. But they need to think of all the factors. If they are sure that just with enough training, their child will be the next Brett Favre, um, then they might be setting themselves up for disappointment, especially if their child is falling behind other children, maybe even children who started later or are practicing less. And so if it's something that's enjoyable for the parent, for the child, they're learning other skills, maybe social skills or just general team playing skills, other physical skills, then that absolutely might be worth it. But if the goal is only to become the best, then you might be spending a lot of resources in something that might not be the best match for your child, especially if he or she isn't really enjoying it. Mm. And you're taking them to practice, you drive there every day, you drop them off, and you assume just, you know, practice makes perfect. But I guess the research doesn't bear that out either, does it? Right. So practice obviously will improve performance, but an hour for one person is not the same as an hour for another person. For example, in a study with chess, where they examined chess masters, one person in their sample, this is a study by uh, Gobey and Campitelli, 
Um, one person in their study who was a chess master had studied chess for about 3,000 hours before becoming a chess master. Hmm. Someone else in their study had spent over 23,000 hours to get to the <laughs> same level. Yeah, 23,000 hours isn't, it doesn't seem like as, as great of a song <laughs> as 10,000 hours. <laughs> that's true. And that's just and because they're different, sports, right? Uh, where there's physical traits, then you have to take that into account as well. You can play chess for a very long time throughout your life, but there's some peak performance uh, times in a lifespan that need to be taken into account as well when we think of sports. So if we studied just the highest performing athletes in the world, would we would we see any um, consistent themes or trends that made them excellent? Or is it really just very random? I mean, practice, obviously, some resources given to those practices. Anything else that stands out that makes them kind of universally phenomenal? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because we did examine the differences in contributions of practice when only looking at elite athletes. And at this point, everyone, of course, is practicing and training very hard. But among the elite athletes, practice then only accounted for 1% of the variance in performance, uh, and that was not statistically significant. So, for example, if you have someone who's a multiple Olympic gold medalist and someone who's competing at the national level but can't really get international success, they're probably practicing about the same. The person who can't reach the Olympics might have even put in more hours of practice. So... Certainly, a lot of practice and training was necessary to reach the elite level. But once you get there, other factors really seem to be in play. So you mentioned some of them. For example, Michael Phelps, he has a phenomenal body type Mm -hmm. with physical characteristics that really contribute to him being a phenomenal swimmer. He would not do as well in gymnastics, presumably. (laughs) Some of that can be changed. You can build muscles. um, You can become leaner. But ultimately, you can't do much to change your height. You can't do much to change uh, how many fast twitch muscles you have relative to slow twitch muscles. uh, And how much you have of each really contributes to how well you can perform, but differently with different sports. So there's no one perfect combination. It just depends on the sport that you're trying to achieve. Right. Well, and you you look at um, Phelps and you think, wow, he's tall. He's got a long reach, so basketball. And what if his dad, what if he was just a basketball fan and kept pushing him toward basketball and basketball? I guess there's a lot of value as a parent in trying to find the unique traits and talents of your child, not just go with your favorite hobby. Right, absolutely. And I think that's going to be best for the child as well and for the parents ultimately because Hopefully their child will have more success and they'll feel better about their decision. Mm. What? So as you study just uh, the kind of the relationship between practice and performance, uh, what else stands out in your mind? What else have you found in the research that was an aha for you? Um, well, there's other researchers doing fantastic research on other traits. So there are geneticists who are looking at microRNA and how that contributes uh, a person's maximum oxygen uptake level. Um, But then there's also research on what we would consider more classic psychological traits, such as a person's propensity to choke under pressure, their Mm. confidence in their performance, their competitive 
edge and motivation to perform well, how much a person prefers to win versus prefers not to lose. Mm. And all of these factors contribute to the individual and how they interact with the sport. And it also depends on the coach that they have, uh, the resources that they have, and the other competitors in the field at that time. Like you mentioned, you might be the best in the world at, at one point in time, but just depending on when you're born, you might be the fifth best person in the world or the best person in the world, even if your performance is no different. Yeah, it's almost like many times these they come in waves of groups of people that just stand out as, as top-notch as well. Okay, man, so much to discover here. Let's take a break and come back. We're speaking with Dr. Brooke McNamara about what makes Olympians. Is it about practice? We're learning it's, it's much more than that, and there are so many other things that make up this complex uh, reality of becoming a top-notch athlete. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion, find out more about uh, parents and what we can do as parents to, I guess, aid in the process of helping our children become the best they can be. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about what it takes to make an Olympian. Is it the 10,000 hours theory uh, coined by writer Malcolm Gladwell in 2008 that uh, he made popular in his books? Or is it, uh, you know, practicing makes perfect? Well, according to our our expert, Dr. Brooke McNamara, who's an assistant professor at Case Western Reserve University in the College of Arts and Sciences. She's talking to us about the fact that it's it's a whole lot more than that. And we welcome Dr. McNamara back with us. Thanks for being with us again. Thank you. When you when you think about it, um, it's really then is it is it it almost just seems random to a point and then um, a lot of focus. Well, I think randomness does contribute to it, and people forget to take into account randomness um, within an individual and between individuals. So you can just have um, some inconsistent performance for no reason, and then there's luck as far as uh, where you happen to be born. Uh, But there are other factors that we can think about. So, for example, how quickly a person can learn a task, which just comes down to basic cognitive abilities, contributes to that and how quickly they can move forward. The physical traits, like we've been discussing, as well as training and practice. All of those need to come together, and they need to come together in the right way for the sport. So the problem with the 10,000-hour rules and practice makes perfect is while they seem like really positive statements um, and very egalitarian statements, is they're not taking into account that sports are different, tasks are different, and that individuals are different, that we all bring something unique to the table. And we, I could just see somebody in an inner city, um, you know, tall, lanky, strong, being pushed to basketball, not swimming, even though his body type might be ideal for swimming. But there's not the, there's not the resources, there's not the coaches, there's not the attention paid to it. I mean, it makes you wonder how many people 
could have been phenomenal in something that just never knew. Right. Absolutely. That and that unfortunately happens. Um, so even countries as a whole sometimes have a national focus. So the Dominican Republic has decided that baseball is going to be a national focus, and they've been producing some wonderful baseball players. Um, so, and those are resources that the government has decided to give. So absolutely, the resources available either from the parents or all the way up to the national level can make a difference of who is able to get the training necessary. What, what do you advise parents out there? Um, what are some of the basic things to remember and um, I guess some of the basic psychology for raising either those that have the potential to become you know, incredible ath- athletes or those that want to be? Um, Well, I think it's important to remember that if your goal is just to make your child the next LeBron James or Serena Williams, um, then you might be putting that over more important aspects of development. So if you are putting all your time and resources just in that, you're likely to be disappointed because most people aren't LeBron James or Serena Williams. Um, So I think parents need to keep in mind what the actual goals are. And if the goals are to uh, give your child a chance to develop physically, develop social skills, and do something that he or she really enjoys, then you're on the right track. And then if your child happens to find something that they really enjoy and that they're really good at, then the choice is easy and you can continue pursuing that. So I think for parents, it's about balancing finding the right activity for your child that's going to be best for them in terms of their interests and their pensions and abilities. Um, And then also finding that line of not letting your child give up too easily on something, but letting them find the right activity Mm. for them. Yeah, you got (laughs) to... You got to let them choose a little bit, but you also don't want them becoming, you know, easily quitting everything they start. Right. And that's that's a tough call. But parents tend to know their children and know which their child is doing if their child's not giving a new activity a chance um, or whether they've really decided that they're more interested in something else. And I think parents can expose their children to a lot of activities and that that'll help. Something else that we found in our research was that it did not matter the starting age of the sport. So when we compared elite athletes to sub-elite athletes within the same sport, the elite athletes and the sub-elite athletes had started their sport at about the same time. So parents, I think, sometimes worry that they need to find that sport early and get their kid in as soon as possible so that they can train as hard as possible. But again, this is buying into this 10,000-hour rule which essentially has been debunked. So practice, again, is important, but it's not everything. So parents can relax a little and know that if they haven't found the perfect sport for their child at age five, that's fine. They still have time. And do, do all of these rules apply to the arts, to being a dancer, to being, um, I don't know, maybe an actor as much as they or an in, playing an instrument as they do to sports? Yes and no. So in 2014, we conducted a large-scale study where we looked at all of the research that had focused on deliberate practice and performance across all domains in which it had been studied. So we looked at games such as chess, music, 
sports, education, and other professions. And in all cases, accumulated deliberate practice accounted for less than half of the variance, but it varied in how important it was. So for games such as chess, on average, accumulated practice explained about 26% of the variance. So again, this is looking across individuals with different, in this case, ELO ratings, so how highly ranked they are as a chess player. And differences in performance um, was explained by practice by 26%. So that's leaving 74% of those differences in performance explained by other characteristics, or at least explainable by other characteristics. Oh, interesting. So so it was... uh... By practicing is more beneficial in in those in the arts in the games than it is in sport. Yeah. So in games, we found twenty six percent. Music twenty one percent. And as a reminder, in sports, it was eighteen percent. Yeah. And probably because physical characteristics are more important in sports than they are chess. Okay. Here's here's the age old question: that if you can solve this, Brooke, you have earned all the money you've ever mm-hmm. deserved. Um. So now my child, let's say, brings me the idea that they want to be they want to be an e athlete, um, you know, video gamer. Do you have any data on video gaming? We do not from this study. There has been some data looking at experience, but not specifically with deliberate practice, which is what we were examining. Um, so I'm not sure about that because that's still relatively new and people yeah. have a hard time researching that because um, in that case, it gets harder to log experience time and experience playing for fun versus deliberately like practicing, practicing to try to get better. Um, and at that point, it just might be so conflated that you can't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say with anything else, obviously, the more you do it, the the more important the the better that you'll get. Um, but there probably will be differences in hmm. ultimate levels of performance a person can achieve. Do you have any insight on how to dissuade your child from wanting to play video games? <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't. <laughs> okay. and I know parents vary quite a bit on, yeah. on how much they're okay with that. Yeah. What, uh, by the way, does any of this have uh, any um, you know, insight, give us any insight into academics. I mean, some people, their, their focus hobby of choice isn't an instrument or a game it, or even sports. It might just be academics. Yes. So we also looked at educational performance. And what we found was that deliberate practice or, or serious study in this case accounted for about 4%, 4%. of the differences among wow. individuals. Right. And that is significant. That's significantly more than zero. Yeah. So again, study is important. But the reason why that seems to be so low is you can imagine a student who goes to, say, a biology class, listens to the lecture, and just gets it. So yeah. reads through the book, looks at their notes, does well on the test. Another student goes to lecture, really struggles, and they study and study and study and still don't perform as well on the test. They've actually put in more study time but are still performing less well than the other student who just got it the first time. So sometimes you even see these negative correlations where the students performing worse are putting in more time and effort uh, just to reach a similar uh, level as the students who don't need to put in as much time Hmm. and effort. Wow. Um, that's, that's just interesting, isn't it? Uh, 
we I, the funny thing is I think we look at all these things like they're all equal and right. we don't we don't think through some of this um at a deeper level as we wrap it up we always like to ask for the one thing that is that makes the biggest difference as we think about our children and and helping them become the best they can be what would you say is the one thing we can focus on it's in our power it's in our circle of influence to help them get the best shot at becoming elite um well, I would turn that around and say that that shouldn't be the goal, Good. that the goal should not be for them to be elite. The goal should be for them to find an activity that they really enjoy. Start there, and then they'll naturally follow the path they want to follow. Exactly. And some children will become elite, and some won't. And of course, this is a continuum, so some will right. be better than others. And, but if yeah. they're enjoying it and learning then that contributes to their development. That's great. Good advice. Dr. Brooke McNamara, thank you so much for your work and uh, keep writing and we'll have you back on. This was fun stuff. Thank you for having me. Wonderful learning again uh, from Dr. Brooke McNamara, assistant professor at uh, Case Western Reserve. Uh, Great stuff. When When you think about it, it's at some point, each and every one of us, we're parents and if we're not careful, we're going to drive our child into this frenzy of needing to be something um, that, that may not even be part of who they are. Let's dig instead deeper into them, find out what they are bringing to the world before we try to push, uh, push them and force them into some mold. We'll take a break, come back, do a little Coach's Corner, helping us uh, see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Coaching time. Here's the deal. We got, you, you got these beautiful little kids. You know, you put them in their football gear for the first time. Their helmet spins around their little head. They feel like a superstar. They've got the armbands, the sweatbands, even though they really won't sweat because they're hardly going to run. And yet you the entire time, are you thinking about them being an NFL quarterback? Right? You've got these dreams that he's going to be like dad. He's going to throw the game-winning pass. And then you see him line up, the coaches line your boy up next to everyone else. And just to have a little, you know, a little workout, everybody run to the fence. And as they all run to the fence, you notice your boy doesn't run as fast as the others. Even the heavy linemen are outrunning your boy. You feel this anger start to just a little, just a little fire brewing Deep in your head, what is he doing? Run, boy! Run! You start pushing your kid. He's never going to be a quarterback if he cannot run the line. Day one. And I've seen it with all of my kids. Oh, man, we raised some beautiful boys that love sports. We got involved in the football league. It was so wonderful. Year after year. Spending five hundred plus dollars a year to play football. Now I'm down to three boys that could play, and uh, my wife 
so diligently dedicated some time, has given time to be on the committee for the football league this year. She's volunteering her time to the football league, and my 11-year-old and 13-year-old boys don't want to play anymore. They want to play lacrosse and tennis. Ah, oh, come on. No, I really don't like it, Dad. Ah, sure you do. Oh, don't really like it. No, come on. At what point do you dig deep into the hearts of your children and let them be them? As a parent, it's a hard thing because sometimes you think they don't know what's right. I mean, this was the same kid that was trying to microwave the metal bowl. So if you don't know how to what to microwave, son, maybe you don't know what sport you want to play this year. What do you do? You watch the Olympics. You dream of your son being at the Olympics or whatever, or being the best piano player, or being the best, uh, you know, being elected in an office at school. How on earth do you get to the point where you can just love them for who they are? I think in the end, um, this is always going to be more about you than it will be them. When you just look at the odds of them going pro, it's not, those aren't great odds. But the principles they can learn in these sports, the principles they can learn about themselves, it's a powerful thing. So will you just look at how you are watching the Olympics? Look at how you're talking about the Olympics with your kids. See if it's all about competition. See if it's about trying. Are you putting an undue stress on your child? Are you being real clear, really clear with them on what you really want out of sports? If it's not, if it's not that they have to be the best athlete, what is it that you want them to become? Are your children clear of that? If they're not clear, guess what? Then the value of sports, it's probably not being learned. Uh, we had a friend whose father very much wanted them to be a top athlete and uh, most talented kid I've ever seen playing a sport that uh, my son was on his team and he was just incredible. And his junior year when he was right about to just blossom, all the scouts were coming to see him. He quit. He's done. Doesn't want to do it anymore. It's not fun anymore. And really what I think it was was a, the voice of a teenage boy coming out, controlling something he could control, and uh, basically pushing back on his father. So watch out what, what you're creating. And, and instead, when you're sitting down watching the Olympics, let's all try to realize this is great for America. The, you know, they're doing well. The teams are incredible. And this is more than that. This is also seeing the refugees – that are also competing, the ones that weren't competing. You know, a year ago, they were pushing a boat full of their family members to save lives, and now they're running a race. And they actually didn't win, right? But they won. They're in the Olympics. They won the refugee lotto. And uh, those stories are really powerful and important. So make sure that you're not always just moving to the medals list with your kids and in their lives, don't always just move to the medals list. 
make sure you're learning the backstories, especially the backstories in the second you know round uh, group that that didn't make it to the finals. There's some amazing stories of people and the principles, talk principles, and I think th- then you're creating something powerful, folks. Man, the kids they're very they're very willing to learn and open to uh, to to have opportunity from the parents. So, a little coach's corner for you. We'll take a break. Come back a whole new hour next hour. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you become the best you can become. Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. We found an interesting story out of uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. Listen to this. A minimum security prisoner escaped from a halfway house in Alaska and then after getting away decided to come back three hours later. Uh, But not to turn himself in. State troopers say 20-year-old Joshua Yaska returned with an SUV and tried to help other inmates flee the facility in Fairbanks. Staff members say uh, Yaska was spotted leaving on a bike just after 1 a.m. Sunday. And the trooper said he returned about 4.20 a.m. By the way, somehow found an SUV. Just apparently somebody had left it for him, donated it. And tried to aid in the escape of other inmates. Authorities say he tried to uh, strike the, uh, a halfway house employee with the vehicle. And anyway, they, they caught up with him that night after he broke into a relative's home. Now, we're trying to, as we were talking about the story with our team, we decided, you know, sometimes when you make a plan, it sounds better. Like it, it, it seems like it's better in your head than it really gets rolled out, you know, as you're, as you're trying to break everyone out of the prison. And we, we thought that uh, when it comes down to it, that he, he probably thought it was going to be more like a Braveheart moment. Would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! Yeah, see... See, he thought it was going to be like that, this Braveheart moment where he just he would motivate them and they were all pumped up. and They're like, yes. And then they storm out of the building. Uh, it actually ended up sounding more like this. And then he was arrested. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it sounds a lot better. Like, you are free, man. And it's more like, I. We're coming to get you. Yeah. It always looks better when, you, when, when you're thinking it through. Hey, you guys, I'm breaking you out. <sighs> That's the problem with being a criminal today. You got to think it through, and yet you may not have the capacity to think it through. Hmm? See? This is why you got to be careful, kids. It's, uh, it's never... It's never going to be pretty. Um, as we talk on the show so many times um, and, and get into life, it's, it's always harder than we think it's going to be. I mean, think about it. When in your life has it ever just been easy? Like, ah, 
holy cow, life is so easy. Because if, if the minute you're thinking, man, life is easy, it seems like you're setting yourself up for something big to happen. Have you ever felt like that? The minute you start to think, boy, this is a cakewalk. Or the minute you think that school, for example, is just, oh, it's so, boy, I am loving what I'm doing. Then all of a sudden, something weird will happen. And it might even be good, like a promotion. Now, all of a sudden, you get a promotion. So no longer do you just get to be, you know, a great salesperson. You now get to manage eight other salespeople, which is so great because, right, it's more money. And then you start hearing them tell the stories about how their car didn't work, so they missed the appointment, and then it didn't. (sighs) If there's anything I've learned in life, just give it time. If it's too easy, it'll get harder. If it's too hard, give it time, because guess why? It'll get easier. The great benefit of life um, and, and things that we think are easy, things that we think are hard, just give it time. Because in the end, it'll get, it'll get better. It always does. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is by Gordon B. Hinckley, who was once a president of uh, the Church of, of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the church that uh, runs BYU, owns BYU. And one of um, his great uh, quotes that he's, he's so known, known for is um, simply keep trying, be believing, be happy, don't get discouraged, things will work out. Be happy. Keep at it. Keep believing. Be happy. Don't get discouraged. Things will work out. So if you've ever doubted, folks, take a big, deep breath. Things will work out. Just give it a few more days. Don't give up. Just get busy. Get working on it. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Life is good. And we sit here, we get so caught up in the news from like Orlando and the political news. But meanwhile, there's just a family from Arlington that's running a site and uh, for 3D printing of prosthetic hands, right? And they're not, again, they're, they're not bionic. They're not, sometimes the plastic doesn't work. They're, they're strung together and made functional by, you know, strong fishing line, Um so they're not perfect, but what they've created is a community, and it, I really feel like it's it's the model. It, it is the model of of charity. We've seen it uh, on the show. We try to bring you a lot of these people so that you can see the good that's going on out there. But this world's going to be changed by by groups of people, by communities of people. It's no longer going to be done by one person. So we we spend all of this this time on Trump. And on Clinton, and yet the world's going to be changed by more people like the Owens that we just heard from. Uh, Margaret Mead has a great quote that says, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. So you're a part of that community, and um, everybody's got something to offer, again, the community is more valuable than probably um, some of the things that we we might hope to have happen. I mean, I would love this charity, uh, enablingthefuture.org, to be able to move much faster than it is, for example. 
um, to you know improve the lives of thousands or millions of people if possible. But really, in a way, that the community has to go at the community's pace. It has to go at a, at their speed. Um, and the benefit of it going at that speed is that eventually that uh, community will be able to sustain itself and grow itself, and it will grow so organically that it will probably have a better impact on life and on um, on its purpose, on its goal. When we think about all this technology and, and the, how it enables us, how it takes us to a completely different level, what what are you doing with it personally? Um it, it's, it can be to your advantage. It can be to your disadvantage. And we always have on the show the people that come and talk to us about technology and how it's, we end up wasting our time and how we might be able to take better advantage of it. But simply finding a community. We also talk about the fact that a lot of our, uh, us feel like we're being, you know, we're becoming more and more solo uh, creatures because of technology. It's not actually broadening my circle. It's making me you know, be impacted by what others are doing, and then I pull away and are, you know, depressed because I don't have a boat. Because <laughs> I just looked at my friend's Facebook page, and he just took his kids out on a boat, and I don't even have a boat. Um, the reality is, though, again, it's this is another example from enablingthefuture.org that you can go belong to a, a bigger community. So imagine that you're just – imagine you're uh, an engineer, and you've always loved – putting, you know, the the furniture together from IKEA and that always has been exciting for you but you hardly you, you're you've bought all the furniture you need. Where can I use my talents? Um maybe you have kids that are no longer in scouts so you can't build the Pinewood Derby car for them anymore. <laughs> As many fathers are known to do. So what you might be able to do with some of your great skills is to reach out and find a community. We're all members of a greater community, right? And if we could find a way to go take our talents, our gifts, and hook into an organization like enablingthefuture.org, it's a chance to give back to the world. It's a chance to serve. It's a chance to then use your gifts, your talents, the things that are unique to you. I'm not an engineer, so if I became a part of this community, I would probably just be a cheerleader on the side, uh, maybe a fundraiser. But I wouldn't be one that's that's innovating the device or the, the 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 design. But that's not my role. But there are designers that would be great there. So don't get down. Don't get discouraged when it comes to all of this technology, when it comes to um, what you can offer the world. Because really, what you can offer the world is just you. And if we can find ways to to get into these types of situations or create some of them – out of BYU, we've seen some pretty amazing stories, including uh, the design of wheelchairs um, that were just made out of PVC pipe um, that are incredible for people. There's just no end to the, the needs of the world and your gifts and your abilities. So don't just sit back and think you're done because you're retired. Don't sit and think that, you know, because you're a stay-at-home parent that, that – you know, that's that's enough. Maybe maybe what you could do is if you're still being called to go innovate, if you're still being called to use your talents, your gifts, you know, your degrees, go find a charity, go find some community to be a part of. It could be your church community. It could be giving back to your school community on the PTA. There's so many ways that this world needs you. 
And maybe that is the fastest way to create a better world. It's it's probably not through political you know drive, and it's probably not going to happen through just a business endeavor. Um, don't ever look away from the idea that it might just simply be giving back, serving, and being a member of a community. Powerful, powerful things create uh, these these wonderfully powerful charities. But the the thing that's probably most important is a person that cares, a person with a heart that wants to belong and wants to do what they can. And that, I believe, is you, my friends. So we'll take a break, come back, uh, continue the discussion. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world and helping you be the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Are you feeling dissatisfied with your purpose in life? If you are, it might start with clocking in, you know, bidding your time and then clocking out. If you feel like a zombie with no purpose or you uh, you feel like you're in despair, there's no way out of this. Today on the show, we, uh, we may have the perfect guest for you. Dan Pontefract joins us, author of The Purpose Effect, Building Meaning in Yourself, Your Role, and Your Organization. Dan is the chief envisioner at TELUS, a Canadian telecommunications company, and he's uh, written extensively on the topic of purpose. And, Dan, we're honored to have you here. Thanks for being with us. Matt, it's a delight. Happy morning to you. Thank you, and happy morning to you. Uh, purpose, you know what? If you don't have it, I, 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 I wonder how you get through life without having a sense of where you're going and why you're here. Is it, is it a, I have it. I, I don't know where I got it. I just grew up kind of knowing where I, what I wanted and, and, and what created a, a, a moment, what's the word, a, created a, a power in me to want to become more. What, are there a lot of people that don't have that? Well, you're one of the lucky ones, and I think I am as well. But uh, research proves that there are only about uh, depending on what research survey, 20 to 25 percent of us that actually huh. have found their purpose in life that corresponds to what they're doing at work. So, yeah, both of you, both you and I are lucky. It really is 20 percent. I mean, and I see it in my other work where I where I'm working with couples and people that are just so frustrated with life and their job and, and the energy and purpose, I guess, is something then we can go track down, right? We can go intentionally intentionally start trying to find our purpose. Well, I think what I've seen happen, though, is that, um, you know, people will, they go through high school, they might go to college, and let's say those that do even, you know, they come out of that and they're like, well, I need to work. Right. And so there's almost, there's almost like a de facto, well, you know, that job that I just take to pay the bills has now become sort of, you know, a third, a quarter, maybe even half of my purpose. And that's when things start to really go awry. It's, it's as though there's a default, uh, you know what, that's my job and that's also part of my purpose. And I hate it, but, uh, you know, that's the way life is. So they, <laughs> it's almost like a, they fall into a crutch of apathy. It's true, huh? And it's you've been handed kind of the role of your job, but and then I guess you have a family, and they might they bring you purpose, except maybe not. And then I mean, it's almost like a lot of things are handed to you, and you bring up in your models, um, 
Your organization you work for might give you a purpose. Your job might give you a purpose. Talk about uh, your book, The Purpose Effect, Building Meaning in Yourself, Your Role, and Your Organization. How how do you go about, I guess, creating a, that that sweet spot between all of those? Well, I, I truly believe, and I think through the interviews, the research, uh, my own personal experience, and, and maybe on the, the revision of this book, Matt, I'll have to interview you. But uh, it really it starts with you. You know, it, we all... We all put on our socks or our dresses or shoes, whatever it is, in the morning, and we got to look in the mirror and we got to brush our teeth. And and I think a lot of people are forgetting about that mirror, you know. And and so really, the book is about a Venn diagram. And for those that don't know what that means, a Venn diagram is just three circles, and there's an intersection point in the middle, and all three circles sort of overlap one another, right, to get to that middle middle point. So at the top of the Venn, the first circle is is you. It's your personal purpose. You know, what are you about? Uh, why are you here? Uh, how are you going to show up each and every day? Like, those are some kind of key fundamental questions. Do you have dislikes? Do you have likes? Like, do you know what drives you? Do you know what you want to steer clear of? If you're a postal worker but, but don't enjoy physical exercise, <laughs> it, it's, it's going to be pretty problematic. <laughs> Torture. The bottom two circles. Right. Right. And the two bottom circles quickly are organizational purpose. So what does the organization stand for? Again, if you're, if you're into environmentalism and you work for oil and gas, maybe not a great spot for you, right? <laughs> and then on the, the left, the far left uh, circle, is role purpose. So we all, you're right, we all have a role. We, 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 we have a job at, at work. So if what you're doing inside of that role, even though you may like the organization, let's say, but if the, if the job requirements are such that you're, you're aghast, aghast with or against, you know, you're, you're going to fall out of misalignment, essentially. And, and so anyway, if the good news is that if there's an alignment between the personal purpose, who you are, what you're about, how you're going to show up each and every day, you really enjoy the organization's purpose, what it's doing, to serve society, and we can come back to that in a bit, and you enjoy your role at work, if this all intersects, you you have a sweet spot, but ironically, so does the organization. So it's really a mm. book written for leaders in the org and you as an individual person as well. So if I were in HR hiring somebody, it would be smart for me to try to find somebody who's who has a personal purpose, and that purpose fits into their role I'm hiring for and the organizational purpose, then then I've got probably their full capacity. Yeah, precisely. I mean, if, if you were someone, let's say, in HR, and you're hiring a marketing manager, and, and they are a marketing manager, fantastic, and so they've got, you know, 10 years of experience in marketing. Okay. So you bring them into the organization, uh, but... For whatever reason, you know, they, you forgot to ask the questions about what widget is that you're selling. And maybe they are against widget B. And let's call widget B cars for some reason. So they don't like cars, okay? But before, they were marketing beer. <laughs> they were much better, and they really enjoy beer. But for some reason, they take public transit, and they're not into cars. Like, <laughs> that's going to come out in their work, and they're right. going to fall into what I call the job mindset in their role. And so the organization suffers because you have a disengaged employee now. And as it turns out, that poor individual that's now joined the organization, you know, they sort of forgot to ask those questions of themselves. Why do I want to work at an automobile company uh, if, you know, I enjoy beer better? Yeah. 
And so they fell, fall into a sort of a state of disrepair in their life. And so that affects, as you'll know, with your background and your work, you know, that affects the home, that affects the community, that affects the kids or the family. So, And, and we need the job. The the but, Dan, we need the job, right? So I'm just going to get the job because I need the job. And But if we're not thinking about the purpose of the company I'm going to work for, and if it doesn't jive with me, you like you're saying, you've got a job. What was the name you call that? It's a... Uh, it ends up it just ends up it's just going to suck the life out of you yeah it becomes hedonic yeah oh boy yeah uh, you know just hedonic, get... one of those fancy words yeah. yeah it's just like it's it's like a paycheck it's very transactional and but what so if i love the company up? but i hate my role in the company like i don't want to be in sales i want to be in content creation and you keep wanting me to be in sales and then i might love the job and i might even think i need to be in this company but i don't like what i mean i, I love my company but and i feel a purpose in it but i don't like what i do every day then you're going to lose me too well i'll give you a personal example right so and you're right so this is the responsibility of the leader in this case so let's say your leader x and in my case i was a director of what was called uh, education services. And so I'm at a high-tech company. It's about, um, about nine years ago now. And this woman, Megan, uh, was on my team, and she was a, a courseware developer, like an instructional designer. So she made courseware for some of the products that we were doing. Uh, and and one day, you know, I'm looking around, I'm like, you know, Megs, is this, is this for you? Or maybe, you know, is there something else that you want to do? I mean, you're good at this, but I'm not sure your heart's in it. And now I know you like our company. Our company is about 9,000 people and very philanthropic company. She was really into all the good, you know, higher purpose things of the org. And after a few conversations, Megs and I, she's like, you know what? I want to help people. And I was like, okay, well, let's get you into HR. Let's figure out a way to career path you into HR. Now I was losing a phenomenal resource. Um, but the organization stood to lose the resource in totality mm. if she left. Yeah, yeah. So I think leaders have to sort of put park their egos at the door, so to say. It's kind of like, um, do you remember um, We Are the World? Uh -huh. And, uh, and Spring Springsteen came to the studio, and he put a, a note on the door, and it said, "Park, check your ego at the door before entering. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah, it's sort of like that. You, you, leaders have to do that. And so Megs has gone into HR. Now she's been there for the last, well, nine years, and she loved it. No. To, I, had a, I had a boss that um, basically got me my launch, helped me launch my career. He had the highest turnover in the company because he, that's what he would do is help everybody make their <laughs> dreams come true. But he had the highest, um, he had the highest uh, sales percentages of anyone in the company because they'd all work really hard. And then as soon as they accomplished goals, they had win-wins, and then he'd move them to the next place in the company where they all would want to be. And you know, it, and it was so fulfilling because you knew you were working for a purpose. And you're touching on two things, right? So you're touching on the leader who is selfless. Mm -hmm. and, and that's really what leaders ought to be, is selfless, thinking out for the higher good of both the individual employee they lead, the team that they serve, and the organization that they contribute to, right? So there's the selfless part. But you're also actually, interestingly, um, knocking on the door of selfishness. Mm -hmm. And the selfish leaders, which are, again, they are a dime a dozen in our, in our industries and right. our organizations, they will hoard the resource. They'll protect. Yeah, They'll keep ensure it in. that they can. Yeah, like it's, that's, 
that's where the maniacal nature of the beast of the organization comes to fruition. And the poor, helpless employee is like, well, I guess I'm stuck here. <laughs> so it's, again, it's all interconnected. It's like an ecosystem gone wrong. That's right. And what was interesting about this guy, too, is he, everybody in the company trusted him as kind of the incubator. Um, mm-hmm. And what he would do is he'd create a win-win. Like my win-win with him was for four months. He asked me where I wanted to be. I wanted to be a consultant, a speaker, a trainer, a content developer. And he needed sales out of me. And what they wanted as a company, they wanted all the people that were going to be kind of in the sales and client services division to go through his department. So I, he, he told me I, what kind of – what he needed was were sales, what I needed to move on. We created an agreement that allowed me in four months of hitting certain numbers under certain conditions, he would personally move me to where I wanted to be. And it, it empowered me so much, but he still got his win. And um, and because and every, by the way, everybody in the group was different. Some wanted a better title so they could go to grad school. Some wanted uh, you know better pay because they had kids, and some wanted to just move on. And he would find out what each of us wanted. And by the way, which which I guess is connected to our purpose, right? Yes, that's exactly it. So the the myopic leader who is only in it for herself or himself and is only thinking about their own performance objectives, their bonus targets, like just for them. That creates this uh, this beast, but when you have sure okay, so your guy in this case got what, out of it what he wanted, but he also knows he's there to serve the organization's higher purpose, mm-hmm. which is fueling talent, right? Whether right. as you say by career development and someone wanting a better title or moving on in your case to another part of the org. There, I, I don't know. It's, similarly, it's kind of a correlated uh, point here. If only about twenty percent of us have a purpose in life and at work. Uh, same sort of research suggests that there are only about 20 to 30 percent of us engaged in right. our roles at work, and that includes the leaders. Oh, That's crazy. Totally. Let's take a, ba- a break, Dan. Come back. I want you to walk us through some things we could do to find our purpose uh, on the personal level and the organizational as well as our role. Uh, interesting insight, folks. As you're out there listening, is this your organization? Do you notice that only 20 percent of the people you're sitting around are engaged They do feel like their purpose is being manifested through this process of work and their role there. Stick with us. We're going to uncover it more with Dan Pontefract when we come back. to the Matt Townsend Show. So if I put a microphone up to you and ask, what is your purpose in life? What would you say? Would you know? Now, that's a big kind of life purpose issue. But you need to know why you're here, what you're about, how you want to contribute to the world, how you want to be remembered. That's how I learned to do this is by thinking about, okay, when all is said and done and they're, you know, there's putting... Matt Townsend underneath the ground. How do I want my kids to think about me, my family, my coworkers? And it helped me find more and more about my purpose. And then I, I actually could just keep narrowing it down to one or two or three things. But um, as our guest today, Don Pontefract is joined. Dan Pontefract is joining us. He's the author of the book, The Purpose Effect. 
building meaning in yourself, your role, and your organization. He has been teaching us that uh, there's three things we need to to, to find purpose in and, and make sure they align in an effort to find our sweet spot at work. Um, we have to have our personal purpose, our uh, organizational purpose. We have to kind of buy into the company, buy into the organization we're working with, and, and feel connected to that. And we also have to buy into our role in that company. And when those three things come together, bada boom, bada bing, you found your sweet spot. So, Dan Pontefract, welcome back to the show. Thanks for uh, helping us with this. Thanks, Matt. I'm really delighted to be here. Talk to us more then um, as we go through the the process of finding purpose. How do you how do you suggest we identify it? Well, if you're trying to find your personal sense of sweet spot, right? So, you know, we all have to work forty ish hours a week. We all have to pay rent or mortgage, car payments, you know, kids' tuition, whatever the case may be. We have to work. So, let's recognize that it's very difficult to find so-called purpose if you're not looking at the 168 hours we all have in a week. So that's step one. Mm. Like I, I find that people who truly find the sweet spot recognize that that life is comprised of the things you do personally and the things you do professionally. So that's kind of step one. But what I often help people with is sort of the, the likes-dislike game. Yeah. So in your life, in personal purpose, what are those likes of yours and your dislikes? And just get a, a piece of paper out, a whiteboard, whatever. Just start writing them down and just take a look at that. And hopefully you've got more likes and dislikes and start, you know, uh, putting the likes together into, into sort of pockets or, or categories or, you know, circles. Say, oh, look at where these are trending to and do the same thing for the dislikes. But then... You know, I often ask people then to say, okay, now don't look at your boss, don't look at your team, don't look at your job, but just look at the organization you work for. Just start doing the same thing. The likes-dislikes games. What are the things that are really making you happy, if you will, about your organization? You know, if you're really into community service, does your organization deliver community service? Hmm. And if so, what are some of the things that you like? Same thing on the dislike side. Is it a company that is too focused on profit or too focused in some cases on shareholder return, like some of these deep entrenched, uh, arguably flaws in of the organization. If there are too many of those, you know, you might, might want to cluster those and right. say, wow, that's a lot of dislikes. But then finally, go back to your job. And your job, your role, as I say, is, is really important because that's where you're, you're spending the predominant portion of your time of a work week, of the waking hours in a work week. Monday to Friday, right? So, again, do the like-dislike thing and just sort of say to yourself, you know what, and then kind of look at all three and say, huh, well, this is some interesting finding, and it's really easy exercise to do. Is this... But then... Oh, go ahead, Dan. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, no, I was just going to say, as a manager, uh, I would love to bring you in, and then I start thinking, man, Dan, if I bring you in and you have all my people starting to question if they should be here, that's, many would think that's, that's a dangerous thing, but really, you're unleashing potential. That's the best word you could use. I think you should write a book called Unleash Your Potential. I'm going to write that that's down exactly right there. What, that, that's exactly the point. So the, the next, I guess, tip or step I suggest for people is to then take a look at all those likes and even the dislikes, right? But um, you've heard of a company's mission statement, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. I, I find that we, we, as individuals, as humans, fail to define our own mission. And so 
essentially I call it the, the declaration of purpose. So what's your declaration of purpose? What's that one line or two lines that defines you, that's going to decide how you show up each and every day, and that will ultimately give you your development path? And it's just, it's sort of like your North Star. Hmm. It's this, oh, I keep coming back to this one or two lines. could be three lines. There's no right or wrong answer here in length. But it's that definition of who you are, how you're going to show up, and, and what you're all about. And, and so that's you. Yeah. And, and then you've got to start asking those deeper questions with, with your colleagues, with your boss, maybe, I hope. Yeah. You have an open relationship right, with others and just say, where do I fit? You know, like my story about Megan, like the story about your boss and yeah. where you were and, and how you, quote, graduated to the, the next part of the organization. Like, that's, that's what we need. What do you do if you find yourself, after you've done your purpose kind of statement, and you find your, you, the ladder's against the wrong wall? It's actually in the wrong stadium. Yeah. So, again, that goes back to the reality. Like, I'm not, um, I'm not unpragmatic. I understand. No, you've got to pay the bills. More, exactly, right? So, so within the organization that you're working for, I start talking with your boss, other colleagues, HR, like, start thinking about things like, um, hey, could I go do, like, a, a one-week rotation in that role over there, maybe, and try to work that out? Or, mm-hmm. or even just do some shadowing. You know, what, what, are, what are some ways for you to get involved maybe in a cross-departmental project? How do you sort of insert yourself into the equation and say, you know what, I know I'm in IT or I know I'm in HR, but I'd like to go work on this finance project. Is there a way that I could perhaps be part of that team for three months? And just, you know, that's the whole point of we, we all ought to be uh, better autodidacts, right? The, another word that basically says we should be um, self-developing, and, and you really are in charge of your own development path. So if right. you don't say anything, no one's ever going to stick up for you. You've got you to gotta take the bull by the horn, so to say. Bada-bing, bada-boom, to your <laughs> sort of point. And I guess what's great about that, so if I, if I have my personal purpose and I'm in an organization and a role that I don't like, I, could, I don't have to throw it all away and go start again. I can go leverage where I am, try to start growing myself into a different role purpose, and then I'll have two of the three of the Venn diagram, the the three legs of the stool we're trying to build here. And then that might give me, you know, notoriety in in my new area, my new role to go get a different job. Or maybe I'll see the company differently because I'm in a different part of the company. Or you might even create a whole new role. Yeah. Like that. that's the outside the box kind of thinking, right? So a personal example. So when I joined Telus, the, the the company you mentioned, uh, the Telus uh, communi- or sorry, the telecom communi- company in Canada, I joined in uh, November of 2008 as a chief learning officer. And so there I am helping the organization with culture, with purpose, with leadership, with learning, and so forth. I'm about uh, three and a half years into the gig, and things are going really well. Uh, and I and I love it. I'm in a sweet spot. The, the organization is doing great. I'm ha- everybody like it's just fantastic. Mm. But I knew that come to the end of about the five-year mark, maybe a bit afterward, I knew that I would become bored. And so what I did was I started my own kind of rotations into the sales organization, and I started to create this idea with our C-suite that perhaps we could create a function that was an external consulting operation that would help our customers with their own culture, engagement, purpose, quest. Mm. And so two years after that sort of 
idea, we launched at Telus an external consulting shop, which of which I'm now the chief envisioner of. <laughs> bada so boom, bada bing. That's great. <laughs> but my yeah, my point is, I think you can also chart your own course right. if you have that type of background and you know ultimately uh, support. You know, and I guess that's so empowering. That for some that are out there thinking, well, yeah, that's easy for Dan because he's smart and has all of this stuff. But maybe that's what happens when you're on purpose is it gives you more hope. It gives you more vision. It gives you more energy, more capacity to do more, to create well, more. A, exactly. So there's a story of Tim McDonald. He's a realtor in Chicago. And he, he kind of likes realty and he's doing fine. But he's like, you know what, I'm missing more. I, I need a team. I need a community. So he builds out this community, online community uh, company, essentially. And he's teaching people how to be community managers in the early 2000s when, you know, we, like community discussion groups and forums were just starting, right? He gets a call from Arianna Huffington of the Huffington Post. Wow. She, says, she says, wow, I love what you're doing. Could you move to New York and can you set up HuffPost Live? And Tim's like... Oh, my gosh, what just happened? So his family, they moved to New York, and they're working at Huffington Post. And he's doing it. He's in it for about four years. He's loving it. He's loving it. But he goes and does a keynote in Dallas at a, sort of a philanthropy conference. And he sees this group on stage called Be the Change. He's like, Be the Change? What are they talking about? And they're talking about how to curb um, the sort of the, the lack of um, food for kids, like malnourishment in kids across America. Hmm. And so he had an epiphany. Now, here he is from Chicago as a relatively successful realtor to working beside Arianna Huffington, no less, to going to this sort of happenstance conference. And he's like, actually, that's what I'm about. And he, he sort of networked with the Be the Change organization to see if he could find a role wow. in that team yeah. shortly thereafter. So I guess my other point is, it really is up to you. It doesn't have to be in that organization. Mm-hmm. He went from making lots of money to less money, but this is what happened to him. He needed to fulfill that sweet spot for himself. Even though he was with Arianna Huffington, he enjoyed it, but he still said there was something more missing, and, and he went out and, and found it. Yeah. Ooh. that's uh, Again, it's that's powerful. I guess that's the, the purpose effect, right? Building meaning in yourself, your role, and your organization. Um, as we wrap yeah. up, give me, I always like to ask the one thing, what's the one thing that we could do today that would have the biggest effect on me starting to find that purpose and, and drive it to my sweet spot? I think we all have to remember that uh, we are in charge of our own journey and that no one is going to pave the path unless you hold the shovel. Hmm. You got to start digging. You got to start digging, Matt. That's cool. Dan Pontefract, thank you so much for your great uh, insight. We appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much. Good luck, everyone. Best of luck to you. The Purpose Effect, building meaning in yourself, your role, and your organization. You can find out more about Dan at uh, danpontefract.com. Danpontefract.com. Excellent stuff, folks. You got to start digging. It's your shovel, right? It's your world. It's not going to be paved without your work. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Helping you become the best you can become. That's the goal of the show. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. When we talk about purpose, I mean, with the Olympics going on, it's pretty powerful, right? You see these people who have spent their lives working for something, really not eating, working every day to get to the gym, to then do what they have to do to be in shape, to to make these Olympic dreams come true. And part of uh, this, in our last hour, we got, we got into what makes an Olympian. Is it just exercise? I mean, is it just the work ethic? Is it 10,000 hours? Is it practice that makes perfect? But maybe the real answer is purpose. You got to have a purpose and know what your life is about. Um, so dig in deep. Go go take uh, go start making that list of what you like and what you dislike. Go start to think about how you want to be remembered when you're done with this whole test called Earth, um, because how you want to end it is pretty important. What you want people to say at your funeral is pretty important. Ironically, we have a a crazy story of a man who wrote his own obituary, and then he banned certain relatives from the funeral. A German man has taken his grudges to the grave. This may not be—I guess it is—exactly how he wanted to be remembered. Telling relatives in a posthumous newspaper noticed that some of them aren't welcome at his funeral— Hubert Martini published his own obituary in a local newspaper in Western Germany. And uh, it's interesting, usually Ben's here to speak German for us, right? But Ben's not here anymore. Ben has has left the building. But Jeff Simpson's here, and Jeff uh, also knows German. Accents. Ja. <laughs> so here's what I want you to do. This is, this is what uh, Hubert Martini said, right? The, he describes himself as three things. Jeff, in German, what are those three things? The three words I would use to describe myself would be open, honest, and unforgiving. <laughs> beautiful. You know, when it's said in a little bit of a German accent, it makes it so much more beautiful. He's open, he's honest, he's unforgiving. And, says his five siblings and their families, are forbidden or forboden. Forboden. Forboden from attending his memorial service. They're forboden, folks. That's how you want to go down, being remembered like that. In uh, in his notes, um, he, he wanted the last word on his life, and this is his last line. I have hurt some people, and that is good. Oh, boy. Bless Hubert Martini for teaching us a great lesson. And they, I think, apparently named a drink after him. Crazy, crazy stuff. How do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered by not allowing five families to come to your funeral? I don't know, folks. It's a short life. Let's make it a better one. Let's make it so everyone can come. And let's have ribs. We'll take a break, folks. That's hour number two of the show. Stick with us, helping you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Well, we just heard some, some wonderful advice about how to rethink your thinking. And there's something inherent and I think essential uh, as all of us. The, the, what we're assuming then is that we have a choice on our thinking. 
But what the good doctor Stephen Hayes was just teaching us is you only have a choice if you if you recognize the choice. If you wait too long and allow the thought to just, you know, jump in the sled and start its way down the hill, there's a point that you're not going to turn that around. The speed's going to pick up and uh, the grooves may already be cut for the sled and you're just going to follow the last 500 paths that you've taken. If you want to create the new thought, you have to eventually recognize the stinking thinking. You got to recognize where it's uh, where you're having the thought that maybe you don't want to have. And a key point is don't don't freak out about it, right? Don't get so caught up like I got to stop, I got to stop it. Oh my heavens! Because I think that very energy, that emotion, is what's going to drive the thought more chemical. Remember, your thoughts bring chemistry. So if I ask you to think of somebody that hurt you or offended you as a child, can you think of somebody? Can you think of somebody that made you feel less than or demeaned or somebody who hurt your feelings in high school or junior high? If you can still remember the thought and have the feelings, it's because thoughts have feelings and chemistry and recipes of chemistry associated with each thought. Those thoughts are stored. They're called scripts. And once you once you kind of inject emotion into a thinking pattern, like somebody that is sinning, doing something that they believe they shouldn't be doing or knowing they shouldn't be doing, they might start building every time they do an act, look at something they shouldn't look at. They might then create a reaction like, oh, man, God's going to be mad. I'm so bad. I'm, and they get in and they take all of that emotion and they pile it back onto the thought. And it just keeps compounding the issue, compounding it, digging it deeper, making it deeper, harder to get out of. So at some point, we don't need you to beat yourself up. I, I honestly believe if your God, if he were sitting next to you when you committed that mistake or that sin or whatever you want to call it, your God wouldn't just sit there and induce a lot of horrible feelings on you. Your God would just love you, right? And bring some peace to you. <sighs> Not that you're perfect, but that you're loved. And once you could probably feel that feeling that you're loved – then we can go and evaluate the thought. And you might start to recognize that before the thought, there was a, there was a, there was a subtle pre-thought feeling. One of the things that we've been taught a lot uh, from some of the professors here at BYU about, for example, pornography addiction, is that two of the biggest drivers of the addiction are anxiety and uh, boredom. So if you have a little anxiety on board, that may create the thought – that maybe we ought to go do looking, go start looking at some porn, which then creates feelings, which then drives action. Or boredom. Hey, there's nothing going on here. Maybe I ought to go look at that thing. That, And then off we go. Part of what we want to do is not just add on a ton of negativity and a, ne- a bunch of guilt and pain. What we might want to do is just recognize what is the pre-thought, what are the th- thoughts you have, And then, like our good doctor was telling us, maybe turn it into a song, maybe make it funnier, maybe do something to, you know, get rid of the emotional tension so we don't just gang up and drive these things deeper. Anyway, it's just an idea, right? But it's an idea that can make us better. 
know that your thoughts are driven by your echoes of your history. And those echoes aren't going away, but they are yours. You're here on this earth to act and not just be acted upon, even by your history that was misunderstood by a five-year-old boy. It's time to act. Let's start trying. Start making fun of our thoughts a bit. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. When you think about it, if everybody has some reason to be a little messed up, right? We got our parents to blame. You know, we've got people in our world around us to blame. We have, you know, somebody in our childhood that hurt us or harmed us. So then you look at these foster care kids who really don't have any control. They, they, it's not like they can just be positive and think their way out of this. They have a hole that they're digging and they need to get out of it. And sometimes they just need you. So seriously, Go evaluate if there's some way you could get involved, um, whether time, money, energy, whatever you've got, uh, it makes a difference. I used to do a lot of training where I would take these families and and just help them strengthen their marriages, their relationships to make sure that they were learning, you know, good communication skills so that it wasn't destroying a marriage as they were fostering and caring for these kids. Um, One of the things that I have found is, is key to parenting, as I coach a lot of parents and I coach a lot of kids, is uh, there's a few tricks about helping our kids believe in themselves. Um, a lot of talk is is thrown out there about self-esteem and kids need to have self-esteem and understand their own um, their own sense of who they are and and what they what they bring to this world. And, and I think that's true. Except what they also I believe need is uh, just they just need to know they're, that they that they're cared for that they're worth something, and I don't know. We got to be careful as we are working with our families and our kids and our younger folks, our young adults, the uh, those just graduating maybe from high school. That we need to validate their worth, not just their works. Right, like. We talk a lot about what our kid did, and when he's graduating from high school, yeah, he graduated from high school. He he was, you know, um, valedictorian, top of his class, and we talk about all of these accomplishments. But as soon as we're tying our child's worth to their accomplishments, we might be setting them up for something. Because uh, most kids aren't valedictorian, right? There's one of those per class. So there's 500 that aren't. And yet, if that's what we keep seeing that everyone talks about, we start getting the social mirror reflecting back on us saying, you're not quite cutting it. We want to validate people's worths. And their worth is not just their works. It's not just their touchdown or their looks or their fame or the money they make. You know what it might also be is just their their work ethic, their their sense of um, care for others. They... Um, their inherent value just simply because they're loved by a God, right? And so validate worth, not just works. Don't get caught up on outcomes only. A lot of parents are, and it it sets your children up to not necessarily value themselves. Another rule is to encourage your kids by understanding them, right? Encourage by itself means that we get within the heart of another. 
So do you even know what your child's goals are? I have parents come in all the time and they tell me, I don't, it, my kids won't listen to me. Well, they won't listen to you because you don't seem to care what's in their heart. Well, of course I do. Well, not if you're always telling them what to do. So when it comes to your kids, if you really want to encourage them, you got to listen a lot more than you're speaking. And that ex- that by letting them express... Even if their expression you don't like or is it, you know, it frustrates you or it's not motivated enough, it doesn't matter. Let them express. Shine a light on their strengths. Identify what they are good at. Go figure out. Take these strengths assessments we talk about on the show all the time um, and go learn about what they're good at. What are their character strengths? And there's we've talked about it on the show recently with Fatima Doman and her strengths program. So if you look up our podcast and listen to them, folks, and go figure out what your kid's strengths are. Is is he intuitive? Is he hardworking? Is he social skills? Is he spiritual? And once you know what their strengths are, help them identify daily when they're progressing. Don't just look for where they're not progressing, which is so easy to critique. Why is your room such a mess? Man, you're reading a lot since you got out of school. Why are you reading so much? Talk about what they're doing well. Because if you pinpoint the progress and you know what they, their strengths are, you might start helping them believe in themselves. Heaven forbid. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. With recent shootings in San Bernardino and the Orlando nightclub shooting, ISIS terror attacks are becoming more and more common here in the United States. ISIS no longer works on password-protected forums. It is now operating on YouTube, Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, and other social media sites targeting our youth. James Rollins, who has been deployed to Afghanistan and currently serves on special assignment to the U.S. Northern Command, is here uh, with us to talk about ISIS's recruiting efforts that are taking place in our own backyard. ISIS radicalization, they're targeting our youth, and uh, and, uh, James Rollins joins us now to help us walk through uh, this problem. James, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Matt. Thanks for asking me. You bet. And this article uh, we've been kind of focused on as we've been preparing for this came from your um, your your organization to Cuba security right. uh, what what is what is your what is your organization what do you do well I'm a private consultant a company that uh, offers security advice to fortune 500 companies and in general anybody who asks certainly um, yeah. and uh, we also provide resilient strategies for businesses as well for a, a variety of uh, things that might affect them natural disasters things like that well, we so, need we need your advice as parents on how to, I guess, deal with the targeting of our youth um, by ISIS. Talk about the how ISIS goes about, um, you know, finding and and who are they targeting when it comes to to uh, to enrolling people into the the uh, ideology. Well, what's interesting is that you know, ISIS doesn't hold any special powers. You know, it's not like they can reach into your child's mind and and uh, all of a sudden, you know, pull them over into their doctrine and, you know, convert them and then, you know, put them to these, you know, dastardly tasks. I mean, they 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 have to be invited in. And, you know, so fundamental to all of this, you know, is an individual's uh, resentment 
so, for example, you know, if I'm in a community, I feel isolated, uh, I feel maybe discriminated against or just simply not liked, I, I might generally form a resentment about that. Mm. And then uh, as a result of that uh, resentment, I'm going to go out and I'm going to feed it. Um, I'm going to try to find reasons why my resentment um, is... Uh, um, fair or justified, and uh, in what ISIS does is they provide the doctrine for that. They provide the narrative for that, and and they do that through a, v- a variety of means, uh, which uh, we have really very little to defend, you know, against because we are an open society. Uh, we don't, you know, make it a habit of going down and shutting down uh, anybody's right to free speech, so um, they can operate freely. Hmm. So basically, they're targeting. Somebody that's been disenfranchised, that has resentment. I mean, and it's it seems like a lot now because of you know job markets might be hard. People that don't that have time in the day that aren't necessarily secure um, in their incomes. Maybe high school kids. You brought up in your article this parallels their approach parallels what uh, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold did uh, in prior to the Columbine shoot down. Well, well, the similarity is is. The, the fact that, you know, in the radicalization processes, you know, the new words we're using for it, to describe basically nurturing a resentment, you know, Klebold and Harris um, spent years, um, you know, building on the resentments that they had. Now, they, there was other factors involved in that case, yeah. you know. Mental it, health. Mental health, et cetera. And, you know, just many missed opportunities to kind of interrupt that that cycle of violence. But I think that uh, what what we can take from it is the fact that there was a narrative. They had to develop a narrative around it. They had to they had to justify their feelings. They had to justify the horrendous acts that they were contemplating, and they found fellowship. They had to build a fellowship up around them of hate, and that fellowship uh, at the time, because this was in the '90s, we certainly didn't have the extended you know social media capabilities that we do today. You know, but they found that through, you know, some gaming forums, you know, on AOL, you know, probably talking with other disenfranchised people, and they also found it with each other. Um, and, and they nurtured it, and they fanned the flames until they, they got it to a threshold where they were actually, um, you know, put, you know put, where they pushed themselves into action. Mm. And I think what, what, what we find, you know, when you, when you examine the ISIS issue is, it's not like I say that they have any special powers, but what they do is they have a, a narrative, um, they provide lots of fodder, okay, to feed the resentments. Right. And they provide advice, you know, on how to do the best, you know, the, you know, the, the things that you can do to pro- promote the most harm. So, um, you know, and it's a lot more methodical. More, uh, a, a good word for it might be a franchise. Yeah. So if something does happen, you know, what they're hoping for is that somebody's going to mention that it was, you know, they did it on behalf of ISIS, so now their branding is <laughs> it's, right. it's almost like a marketing strategy, you know. It, it, it almost is, isn't it? They're using yeah. marketing techniques and social media uh, techniques to to target these those that have resentment. That's right. You know, if they haven't found any grounding in their community, um, they're vulnerable. So really, they're not. They're not. You know, they're targeting people who are vulnerable. So you know, if if your child is well adjusted and you know, linked into the community and you have good dialogue with them and you understand what's going on in their life and their thoughts and feelings, I mean, those are all things that, you know, you would find in loving relationships, mm-hmm. you know. But if you have an individual who's isolated, uh, you know, moody, not talking a lot, uh, showing some signs of, you know, wear and tear and, and uh, um, you know, certainly uh, letting things slip that would indicate anger, 
I mean, I think that uh, that person should probably gather your attention. But uh, but if you're gonna if you're gonna do anything about it, just you know, you have to you have to approach it in a in a, for the lack of better words, Matt, uh, in a loving way. Yeah. You know, I mean. Uh, the problem with a lot of our approaches is that uh, we're only left with uh, uh, a criminal uh, approach mm-hmm. in, our, in our toolkit. So it's like when we notice something going on in the cycle of violence, it's like we have to let it uh, cross the threshold of criminality before we do anything, and then it's you know it's a criminal matter. So the person is prosecuted, convicted, and thrown in jail or or whatever. It's like we have very few community resources with which to one promote a. a a uh, different narrative, you know, to, to, to intervene in the narrative of violence and really and, and maybe intervene with a narrative of hope and uh, community relation, uh, connectedness and love, you know, you know, it's just, it's, you know, it's a fundamental co- you know, component of any, any uh, healthy relationship, right? right? Well, so, it's, isn't that, I mean, they don't, they're being ostracized maybe in school, mm-hmm. but we, like you're saying, there's nothing other than law enforcement um, really, I mean, schools could maybe help more, but also churches, community groups, neighborhood community efforts, sporting Absolutely. teams, any, anybody that could reach the youth could could probably help. I think that, that that's, that's spot on. I mean, the bottom line is, is that when you're dealing with complex issues like this, the best approach to it is a local approach. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's actually, as far as I'm concerned, besides, you know, intelligence gathering and intervention at the criminal, you know, matter level, you know, is really where the federal government and maybe even the state governments are are stuck. But I think that the, the people who have the solution in their hands um, are local community groups. I mean, think about it. I'll give, you know, an example or a parallel. It's like here in my own town of Tacoma, Washington, we had a gang problem starting in the 90s when the Bloods and the Crips moved up, mm-hmm. you know, north, and they started to take over some of our um, more challenged neighborhoods. And and our and the the, the response in the neighborhood is really kind of a nice story. The response in the neighborhood was to create community groups and to start to root out and interrupt that violence uh, that was occurring it was so widespread in the '90s. And yeah. now it's a it's a, it's a a peaceful place, uh, and they still work on it. It's not like they, you know, they got rid of all the gangs and, and everything went away. They, the gangs are still there, but they, they uh, have a tougher time at it. Um, they, that's really the right approach. No, no one knows the fabric of the community more than the community, right? Right. You know, so if you're going to get in the, involved with that, that, that's the approach to take. You know, churches, you know, schools, uh, PTAs, you know, all of these are, the, 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 I think, the uh, locus of change that we should seek. Does is it uh, is it um, a Muslim thing, or or can Christian churches approach and and because we really who they're radicalizing are all faiths, right? This isn't we we think of this only as Islam's oh, yeah. problem that's no. affecting us, but the reality <laughs> oh, is is no, they're no. targeting everybody. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know. Um, I think every religion has got blood on its hands. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that, the, the, you know, religion provides us with our basic narrative for living life. It's the basic drama where we can see these, you know, where we can really see violence played out before us and the consequences. I mean, the purpose for these stories is for us to understand, you know, who the hero, who the villain is, and then, you know, uh, what the outcome was in terms of consequences so that perhaps we can avoid <laughs> these consequences right. in our own lives, Right. So that's the basic narrative of all religions. But, you know, people, um, uh, you know, who uh, have 
other purposes for that religion will twist it in a manner in which it suits their purpose, and then it forms the the basic ideology necessary to to uh, you know pr- to emote or to promote the, the the nasty things that they want you to do. And and it's not just you know religion. I mean, even in the secular ideals that we have in our constitutional forms of government, we have to provide similar ideologies in order to justify violence. I mean, when we go out and we defend. Uh, ourselves in other areas of the world, we have to provide you know, certain good guy justifications for all of that. Right, right. So it's it's really all the same process, okay? Um, maybe not all the same ethics, though, um, but you still have to provide that basic narrative in order for a human being to feel like they have the necessary uh, justification to, to, to do such a horrendous act, whether on the side of good or evil. I think that's... That's huge advice too. Just, I mean, every every youth group, every church group, every uh, PTA meeting, they could be discussing how do we bring in these people on the edge, on the fringe, that don't necessarily feel like they're being included. How do we uh, make people feel like they're a part of something? We're speaking with James Rollins, uh, the author of a wonderful. Um, article on uh, ISIS radicalization targeting disenfranchised youth and how to uh, turn that around. He uh, works at TacubaSecurity.com. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion, find out what we can do as parents and uh, what we might want to watch out for, how ISIS actually goes about reaching these estranged uh, youth of ours. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. To the Matt Townsend Show. How does ISIS radicalize youth in America? It's a it's an interesting approach, and honestly, one of the probably most advanced activities that ISIS is performing would be their social media campaigning. Probably, they're on the cutting edge. There, they know all of the techniques and tricks. They constantly rotate the services they use, but they're using Facebook, YouTube. Tumblr, Twitter, you name it, to find these disenfranchised youth and those that uh, truly have resentment toward the country, toward others. And then they teach them. They teach them what they need to do, the advice they need to fight back. Um, Crazy, crazy thing to think that uh, your child or somebody that goes to school with your child could be radicalized, make their way back to the Middle East, be trained and then brought back to the United States. It's a scary thought. Joining us is James Rollins, and uh, James is, a, um, is, is an expert in the field. He wrote a wonderful article called ISIS Radicalization, Targeting Disenfranchised Youth that gives us so much information about what we can do, how we can fix some of this, what we need to watch out for. And we're talking to him, and uh, he's just tutoring us as parents and community members on how we can make our world a little safer. James Rollins, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you, Matt. And again, TacubaSecurity.com is the website, T-A-K-O-U-B-A, T-A-K-O-U-B-A Security.com. So, James, um, what do they do? So what are their techniques? How do they use social media to to bring these kids in? 
Well, I, I, actually, there's a um, a really good uh, uh, description of that. It's called ISIS in America, and uh, it's written by Lorenzo Vidino and uh, Seamus Hughes um, from the program on extreme, uh, extremism at George Washington University. Mm. And they, they did an excellent study that uh, describes how um, the... Uh, um, how ISIS uh, targets youth, and and, and generally, uh, what they do is they 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 basically cast out a, a message, and the message uh, they hope the message then resonates with somebody in a community uh, that uh, you know is looking to nurture the resentment, as we spoke of in the first part of the of the show. And uh, when they get that person into that dialogue, then they start to uh, basically support that person. Now, if there's any kind of a counter. Uh, to that, you know, whether, you know, like the government, uh, some of our security agencies that may be monitoring these kinds of com- conversations to seize what's going on and, and attempts to intervene or they're detected, um, then what uh, ISIS does is they, they drop that node and then they do a blast to all the people that were responding to that node and uh, they just basically move it so that mm-hmm. way they can av- avoid detection. So, you know, they're very, they're very, uh, they're very good at it. And just, just the fact that you know, with the World Wide Web, they can do it from Syria, they can do it from you know Iraq, they can do it from wherever they are, and there's very little that anyone can really do about it with respect to you know, it's not like the police can go break down their door and haul them off. So, right. You know, and not not only that, but there's just you know various ways that they can mask uh, where they are, you know, even in on the World Wide Web. So, and even if they could do it, let's say that they can't lure this person to Syria. They still are influencing them greatly, and it's still yes. an advantage. That's right. That's correct. And, and then, yeah. but their goal is to get them to Syria, I guess, eventually. Well, I, honestly, uh, based on what we've seen, uh, their goal is to you know to do that. Probably a lesser um, from here in the United States because it's just that much more difficult right. to get over that far. You have so many more gates to get through, um, so it's you know pretty low probability you likely make it. But there has been some. There's been According to the study, like 75 folks that have been, uh, you know, moved out, uh, you know, who have attempted to get to Syria, um, you know, because there it's war. The good guys and bad guys are a lot easier to determine, and you know, so it's a lot more attractive. There's some glory in there, yeah. um, you know, to to uh, that endeavor. Um, but it, what we're starting to see is that people don't have to leave home, right? I mean, here we're in the United States. We got, act, you know, pretty re- <laughs> easy access to guns, and uh, if you want to go out and do mayhem, you can uh, you can do that uh, fairly simply. Um, so it's really testimony to our security apparatus that you know that we haven't seen more, and um, I think uh, you know, we really need to really need to uh, keep our attention on that. But I, I, I don't, you know, but getting back to where we left off at the end of the first yeah. segment. I don't think we should solely rely on law enforcement agencies to be our only uh, stop measure to this. We, we we really need to, you know, again talk about what do individuals do that will um, prevent this from happening. You know, I, what, what what can Matt do? Yeah. What, you know what can James do? And, and well, parents really, and and but, parents. And, but yeah. some of these kids that are disenfranchised don't have their parents paying attention anyway. It's not like the kid's going to say, "Hey, mom, I really want to go do spring break in Syria in Kabul." <laughs> yeah. So it's so yeah. you're not going to get this overt statement, but you're going yeah. to see signs. What are the signs that I mean? I really think uh, teachers could see those that are on the those that are maybe excluded or on the fringe, and this could start. I'm assuming young in life. I mean. Junior high. 
Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I don't think that I, I don't think that it's uh, something that comes on you know as a sudden onset and then you know somebody walks through. I think it takes you know quite a few, uh, quite a bit of time. I, I can't really quote because I you know certainly haven't read any studies that have you know lined this out, um, but. Uh, it, it takes a bit of time. You got to develop this this whole. Uh, like I say, you have to develop this whole narrative. You got to find justification for it. You maybe even find some fellowship in, in order to, you know, of hate, you know, in order to uh, to do such a horrendous thing. And, and I guess too, you don't have to buy. They don't necessarily have to buy into um, the religious side of it as the narrative. They could just buy into the fact that America is dangerous. Or True. you know, right. Um, but Somewhere along the line, though, you know, and this this uh, this this idea, another good place to get some information about it. There's a CBC lecture, CBC Ideas lecture given by Jordan Peterson, uh, University of Toronto, and he he talks about how um, you know he, he talks about the personality that a person has to uh, to develop in, in order to do such a horrendous act. Mm. One of the components of that personality is arrogance. Okay, there has to be. Something that makes you greater than another person, or even greater than God, in some cases. I mean, if you listen to um, the way, you know, if you if you read the journal, for example, for Klebold, oh yeah, you know, you look at his narrative. He tells you how he feels about things and how he how he sees himself in relation to other people. He thinks he's God. Yeah. Okay, and he puts himself above God, even in the story of Cain and Abel. Right. Right. <laughs> right. You and know, we see we see these these threads throughout. So. You know, that's, that's uh, you know, I think that's an important part of this. Well, and we saw, for example, the Charleston church shooting, mm-hmm. where just, again, seemingly ostracized, resentful, angry, arrogant situation where many, many, many were hurt and using violence. And I, I guess in the end, um, we we need to as communities, and, and it, like you're saying, it's got to be on the local level. Yes. We need to start finding these people earlier, and uh, then what? Oh, well, we gotta we gotta help them, <laughs> and, and I guess include them. <laughs> yeah. if not it's, it's, diagnose it's about, them. You know, creating a you know we we live in a pluralistic, uh, and we're supposed to be an inclusive society. Yeah, I mean, you know, and again, we got to get it down to individual behavior. You know, how do you treat somebody that you see that you know is is uh, wearing um, a hijab or or uh, you know is is obviously a Muslim? You know, how do you treat them? How do you interact with them? Do you treat them with fear uh, and avoidance, or do you, or do you embrace them and you bring them into your, into your, uh, into your social mm-hmm. sphere? Um, you know, it's all about you know uh, being uh, feeling included or feeling excluded. I mean, I think that's the the basic the thing that starts all of this. Um, so, I think that. Uh, we have to really examine our individual behaviors. And, you know, right now, and I heard earlier in your show, you guys were talking about, geez, what's going on in our country? Well, I, I think that, you know, we're starting to see some of these basic resentments find narrative footholds, you right. know, even our political figures. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's kind of scary, isn't it? Very scary. Yeah, so we're talking about, you know, again, basically what, you know, we would probably call social justice issues. And, and what we really need to start, you know, kind of meditating on is is uh, how, how are we going to, you know, how are we going to promote more inclusivity? How are we going to kind of get ourselves uh, back on track again? You know, with a with a common theme that we all can agree with. You know, that seems to be what we're struggling with in this country these days. Is it? Um, and again, too, it's maybe we've relied a lot on government, thinking government would would be fixing this, but in reality, 
it's not going to be government that fixes no. it. It's going to be the neighbor boy playing yeah. with the neighbor boy. There you go. That's exactly right. I, I think that, you know, again, complex issues require, I think, local changes, because I, I think that what we're beginning to see, especially with the speed of change, you know, promoted by, you know, the Internet and uh, social media and such, that um, our governments are just having, simply having a hard time keeping up with the rate of change, mm-hmm. social uh, attitudes and uh, and information. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we really need to begin to bolster our local approach to things. Man, isn't it funny? It does come back down, like you said earlier. It's it, it's this simple service, love, acceptance. Yes. People need to feel like they belong. And you know what? Those principles come from religion, too, don't they? Yeah, they do. Yeah, so... <laughs> You know, that's the thing. It, you know, you can get both. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And, and it can. Exactly. It can be both. It's, it, it is, seems like we made a move. I don't know where it was. Somewhere 60s, 70s, 80s, where we turned to government to be the provider, the caregiver, the teacher yeah. of these things, when in reality, it's much more kind of homegrown. I think so. So we can talk yeah. about it as families, right? Bring it up to our kids. Yeah, reach out to the neighbors that need the that need inclusion. And mm-hmm. um, anything else? Any other things you see as an expert in the field that would make a difference? Well, I, I think that um, I, I think that's really the extent of it. It's really general advice, just simply because I think that that's the reason why you rely on the local response because they they need to innovate. They need to create the dialogue, and they need to innovate, and they need to find their own solutions because, you know, it, it, there's nothing really prescriptive about it. You right. Know, it, it is really simple advice. You know, it's about inclusivity, love, and, and helpfulness. You know, I mean, because if you pull these people in and uh, you help them, uh, you know, uh, you, you basically short-circuit that resentment. Good stuff. James Rollins, thank you for your time. Appreciate your work and your insight. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. You bet. Keep up that great work. James Rollins, again, is a managing partner at Takuba, a firm that provides consultation and planning for companies in the area of business continuity, incident management, and business operations. You can find them at Takuba. Uh, hold on. Let's get there. i got to get to their website. Um, TacubaSecurity.com. Takuba Security. Good stuff. Folks, parents, it is. It could be the neighbor kid down the street that nobody talks to, that nobody reaches out to, that we all just kind of assume, oh, you know how he is. Let's not leave anyone behind. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you reach out and finding the good in the world. We'll be back. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. Welcome to my house. You know, there are, isn't it interesting, the target for ISIS and uh, radicalization would be the ostracized, the, the, the one that has resentment. And how many people have that? I mean, fit that criteria simply because, you know, people won't play. They're a refugee. They come to the country and everybody's parents heard weird things about the refugees. So we don't embrace them. We don't allow them in. Or it's the the Dylan Klebolds of the world who ended up spending a lot of time hating 
the jocks and the popular people. Playing video games, going to chat rooms, spewing their venom, and then nobody was pushing back on them. And then the event. Let's just have a massive shooting. So these people aren't they're in many cases they're us they're you they just had a bad turn where people weren't stepping in and weren't there for them and then the people that were there for them aren't the ones we need there uh it's it's probably the same way that we create by the way other radical groups uh a Ku Klux Klan probably could happen the exact same way um, gangs could happen the exact same way. If you don't feel like you belong somewhere, then you just need to, I guess, find somewhere to belong. So as a community, we are terrified. We hear of these shootings. We uh, we go after the guns. We go after the politicians. We honestly believe that a politician is going to make the difference. Right? We've seen for years the politicians can't make a real difference in getting the neighbor to go accept the 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 estranged neighbor child that's not a political problem that's a that's a family problem that's a street problem that's a personal problem so this is one of the reasons why we've had on the show recently this a lot of experts talking about how we got to watch out for our language and kind of this globalization versus uh, populist approach by you know batting down the hatches, locking up the country, and thinking everybody outside of the United States is wicked and horrible. Watch out. Watch out for that. because And it's not just because it's going to impact the economy. You can't have everybody that doesn't look like you be your enemy or – you're going to create problems. And that could be anywhere. You see it in every single high school, don't you? Just your high school kids. There are many times. Who who in high school didn't feel at one point or another like they had been kicked out? They're on the outskirts. So I think a lot of us can feel what that feels like. But how do we fix it? I, I think we probably need to risk more. We need to be willing to let people into our circles more. Uh, we probably need to allow the opportunity and teach our children that we can have people that have different values from us. They don't all have to think like we think. We can take confidence in our values. We don't have to do things that are against our values. But if somebody sees the world differently than us, we might want to find a way to bring them in instead of just circling the wagons. Now, we don't have to, obviously. <laughs> But we will pay if we don't. We'll pay. And it will, we may just pay with people that don't like us. We may just pay with people that try to create laws against us someday. That's, the, that's what makes this hard is we're all trying to get along and yet uh, we have a hard time actually accepting a lot of people. Again, it doesn't mean your values have to change because their values are different. You can keep your values and still respect other human beings and invite them in. And they may not show. But think about it. The kids in your neighborhood. Can you think of somebody in your neighborhood, somebody in your church group, somebody 
in your uh, friend circle that isn't quite included? Somebody that's gone more quiet, somebody that that needs a little bit more attention, maybe need doesn't get the supervision or the help from their parents, or some that are angry. I just challenge you, go try to reach out to some of them. Find a way. Let's see if we can't fix some of these issues on the local level, which uh, might make it easier through this presidential election to, to find the peace. Perhaps the peace isn't going to come from your election. Perhaps the peace has to come from you and your day-to-day interaction with the people around you. Hmm? Just a thought. little thought from Dr. Matt. 